The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to take a break from Thessalonians this morning and look at 1 John because something happened last week that I need to deal with. So uh, last week I was accused of teaching progressive forgiveness. And the reason I was accused of this is because in the message I quoted 1 John 1.9. Now I didn't even have it in my notes, but it just came up in the message and I quoted it. So because of that, I got accused of teaching a progressive forgiveness. And in an email entitled, we are, are We Progressively Forgiven? A listener writes this, As an ex-Roman Catholic, I recognize the damage of perceiving ourselves as being progressively forgiven. The reason why doing so inadvertently reinforces law-keeping for our righteousness. Now, if you know me, you know I'm always preaching, keep the law so you can be righteous, right? So... A religious practice which I contend is apostate in terms of veiling the glorious gospel while promoting both sin consciousness and sin management from a righteous, for a righteousness by human effort and performance by its practitioners. Then he goes on to say, What I heard you share as it related to 1 John 1.9 is forgiveness is something we identify with and realize progressively. We are thus in and out of our sins on the basis of our works or confession of our sins. Now, let me just say this. He may have heard me say that, but I didn't say it. Okay? And and it's weird because people do hear things that you don't say. And a lot of times I'll be accused of something and I'll say, okay, go to the video, give me a time spot where I can see that, that you say I said that. Usually I don't hear back from them. Because, you know, we hear things, you know, that aren't really even there. Well, then he writes this lengthy email to show how we are not progressively forgiven. And the thing that really frustrates me about this, we were dealing with verse 8. And I talked in verse 8 about, you know, those who do not obey the gospel. And I spent several minutes talking about that. And I stressed the fact that salvation is by faith alone, apart from works. And then you write me a letter and say, I'm teaching works. I'm like, I just, yeah, stuff like that's frustrating. But I think it's a, I think this whole area needs to be talked about. Later in the week, someone sends me a video of some guy talking about, the title of the video was Asymptomatic Salvation. I love it. I thought it was kind of catchy, you know. And basically what he's doing, you know, he talked about how COVID, you know, we come up with something new. You have a disease, but you don't know you have a disease. You know, there's no symptoms. So COVID is asymptomatic. I'm like, why would I worry if there's no symptoms? Who cares, you know? But this guy was on the video is basically saying that the free grace teaching, what I teach, is, is asymptomatic salvation. He's saying that I teach you can be saved but have no symptoms. Okay? So I would love to talk to him, but I didn't. But my question to him would be, What are the symptoms of salvation? And this would be a great question to ask churchianity. How many different responses do you think you would get to this question? 
Yeah, as many as people as you ask. What, what are the symptoms of salvation? You know, you'd have some people that would actually pull out biblical sins and name them. You know, adultery, fornication. Okay, yeah, those are sins. So if you do that, you know, have no symptoms of salvation. But others would, you know, other things. Okay, well, he smokes, so obviously he can't be a Christian. You know, or they drink or whatever. So what are the symptoms? And what is, what is, you look at someone and you say, well, they're definitely Christians. How, how do we do that? What are the symptoms? So I'm teaching an asymptomatic salvation. Well, no, I'm not at all. So what is a biblical symptom of salvation? So one word answer, what would it be? A biblical symptom. Thank you, David. Faith. No, love. Barnacle got love, and I was hoping someone would say that, okay? (laughs) Love is a symptom of discipleship. By this, by your love for one another, they shall know that you are my disciples. Okay, the symptom of salvation is faith. Let's look at just a couple of verses. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. All right. Now, he's saying, Yeshua is saying here, nobody can come to me. Now, what's really important here, you have to back up in the context of verse 35 of this chapter. Because in verse 35, we see that coming to Yeshua and believing in Yeshua are synonymous. That verse teaches it. They're parallel terms. So coming to Christ is the same as believing in Christ. Believing in Christ is the same as coming to Christ. This is so important how we understand that. Christ is saying, no one can believe in me. Unless, what has to happen? The Father who sent me draws him. And we've been over this verse a ton of times. Draws here is helkuo. It means to drag by irresistible superiority. Somebody was wooing earlier. We don't woo. The God doesn't woo you. I don't even know what woo is, okay? Woo, okay. God wooed me. <laughs> he draws with irresistible superiority. That's what the word means. So nobody can believe in me unless the Father draws them to me. That's the only way. So if you have faith, why do you have faith? Because God drew you to himself. All right, let's look at another one. 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been, it's a past tense, has been born of God. So if someone believes in Christ, they do believe because they've been born again. Now the church has this backwards today, you've got to get born again and then, you know, God will, you get faith. No, you have to, you have to be born again, then faith comes. It's not you believe, and because I believe, God will give me life. It doesn't work that way. You, you don't will yourself into life, all right? So if you believe, it's because you have been born of God. Faith is the symptom. It's the evidence of salvation. They believe the gospel. So the asymptomatic salvation charge against me, it makes much more sense, though, than being accused of teaching works righteousness. I mean, if you listen to me at all, I don't know how you would get that I teach a works righteousness. But both are wrong. Okay, there are symptoms. Believers, I, I can't stress how important this topic is. You know, we did the series on brilliant distinctives. This was the first distinctive. Free grace. Because this is more important than anything. Because this deals with salvation. And if we're wrong on salvation, we're really wrong. But there's so much confusion today in churchianity. How does a person get saved? And how do you know a person is saved? So for our study this morning, I'd just like to back up a little to 1 John And look at what he says in this text here. And see if we can understand what's going on here. All right? 
Now, when we look at 1 John, the first thing we've got to ask a lot of questions, who is John writing to? All right? So, in 1 John, anybody know who he's writing to? Uh, it's not it's not a city, right? So, okay, who who's he writing to? Uh, who, who is John writing to? Well, 1 John is most likely a circular letter. All right? And by that I mean it was intended to be passed around to various churches in Asia. And there's nothing in our text in 1 John chapter 1 today that would make you think, well, this is limited to the first century audience. There's no time statements. There's no indication that this is just for them. It was a letter to be passed around, all right? The only thing that can be said for certain about the intended readers based on the content of the letter is that they were believers, all right? 1 John 5.13 These things I did write to you who are believing in the name of the Son of God. He is writing to Christians. This is not an evangelistic letter. He's not trying to get anybody saved. He's writing to believers. Now, the fourth gospel was written for the very purpose to bring men to faith in Christ. And now he's writing here to those people who have come to faith in Christ, and he's instructing them how to live and how to have fellowship with the living God. So I see the purpose of this letter as fellowship. 1 John 1.3 That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Yeshua the Christ. Now, if you're to grab a commentary on 1 John, chances are, really good, the commentary is going to say that 1 John is a test to see who's really a Christian. Okay? Uh, they're just so far off the base with, with that whole thing. You know, that's not a biblical thing, testing people. Let me test you. I want to make sure you're right. Here's the questions you've got to answer right. But they just make this a test. He tells us what it's about. It's about fellowship. And this, this phrase here, so that, you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, this is a henna purpose clause with a present active subjunctive. The main theme of the epistle is fellowship with Yahweh. So believers, this book is about how we, right here, right now, can walk in fellowship with the living God of all creation. I mean, if you just stop and think about it for a minute, it's literally mind-blowing, Okay. Let me, let me pull up Psalm 50, verse 1 here. This is a, an amazing verse. It says, The Mighty One, God, Yahweh, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Now, the Hebrew here, the Mighty One, is the Hebrew word El, and the word God here is the Hebrew word Elohim, and then Lord is Yahweh. So the phrase here is El Elohim Yahweh, and it, this translated means Yahweh is the greatest God. He's the greatest God. And this is the God who created everything that exists that we, as believers, can walk in fellowship with, can commune with, just like Enoch did. Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God. That's a significant phrase. It's also used in Noah in chapter 6. This phrase only occurs three times in the Tanakh, no times in the New Testament. When God walks with man, that's a, that's a rare thing biblically. The first occasion was in Genesis 3, the Lord God walking in the garden. Adam was in that garden. Adam walked with God in the garden temple. 
And that was a direct divine encounter. That was fellowship, intimate fellowship, walking with the living God. They heard God walking in the garden. Enoch had a holy intimacy with the Creator that separated him from the world around him. So I believe that fellowship with God is the highest, the greatest human experience. Adam knew it and he lost it. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, they fellowship with God. Elijah fellowship with God, and God had such a good time, He just took them to be with Him. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. All right? This is the message we heard. We're telling you. Where'd they hear it from? Well, John is affirming the, his personal presence during Yeshua's ministry. He was there with Yeshua. He walked with them. He heard the teaching. And so he's passing on Yeshua's revelation, not his own. Now, the pronoun we here refers to John and the other eyewitnesses and the followers of Yeshua during his earthly life. And the you is the believers in Asia. <clears throat> so John is saying the message we were proclaiming to you Christ gave to us, and we're relaying what He told us. In John chapter 8, Yeshua said this, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. So there's a chain of communication here. God the Father communicates with the Son what He wants men to know. And Christ comes and instructs His disciples, and the disciples share with the believers in Asia the message that Christ gave them. And this is the message, he said, God is light. So the message is essentially about the character of God. Now in many ways, this statement that God is light is the thesis of this epistle. It includes the definition of God's character as well as implications for the life of a Christian disciple. So what does he mean by saying God is light? Well, Lazarus would be drawing imagery here from the Tanakh. Now when I say Lazarus, I'm talking about John John Eliezer, I had someone recently write me and said, you, I read this message and you talk, who's Lazarus? I'm like, go back to the beginning. You know, if you don't start at the beginning, you're always going to be confused, you know, so they jump somewhere into John, so I'm just trying to clarify that. John Eliezer was Lazarus. He's the, he's the author of the fourth gospel. Okay. Lazarus was a priest, so he knew the Tanakh very well. And in the Tanakh, we see the reference to God as light, it has several different meanings. I mean, light attends the characteristics of God's self-manifestation. He shows up as a brilliant light. The psalmist pictures God clothed in garments of light. Paul says of God in 1 Timothy 6.16, he says, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Now, this unapproachable light is an appropriate symbol for the one who is pure, who is righteous, who is holy. And light also speaks of God's revelation through the spoken and written Word. Because that Word offers moral guidance and direction for living in accordance with the will of God. And in Psalm 19, 105, it says, Thy Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Believers, the Christian life is a path. And if you're going to walk on that path, you need to see the path, and the Word of God has to be used. You cannot live the Christian life apart from spending time in the Word of God. It lights the path for you, so you know which way to go. So many believers get off the path because they're not in the Word. And they walk in darkness. Light shows people where to walk. God shows us where to walk through His Word. 
Now, the light figure emphasizes many qualities about God, his splendor, his glory, his truthfulness, self-communicative nature, his purity. But here, I think the main idea in John is God is holy. And as the following content in the introduction of Light, Darkness, Moffat makes it clear, it involves the moral realm, and thus constitutes a description of God's character as pure and completely sinless. So I see the message here as God is holy. Now, the Gnostic false teachers asserted that light referred to knowledge alone. So as long as you had knowledge, you were in the light. But John asserts that it refers to ethical purity. So today, just as it was back then, the subject of God's holiness is not all that popular. All right, If you talk about the love of God, people like that. They sit up, they pay attention. Oh, good, we, God is love. But you want to talk about the holiness of God and His justice and His righteousness. No, we don't really care about that. That's not the God we want to hear about. Well, that's the God of the Bible. He says, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, using a strong double negative here, the author states the same thing negatively. It's an assertion of the unchanging, holy character of God. And the symbols of light and darkness are themes which are rooted in the Tanakh and which are drawn upon and applied throughout the New Testament. Light is a significant metaphor in Scripture, and the word light occurs on the very first and the very last pages of Scripture and more than 250 times in between. So the contrast between light and darkness is a major theme also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the metaphor of light and darkness is used frequently in the New Testament in a variety of ways, and in every case, the context provides the clue to its meaning. Now, in our text in John here, he's using it with the idea of good and evil, just like Paul does in Ephesians 5.8. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness. That's everybody. We were all darkness. But now, he says, you are light in the Lord. Something happened. You were transformed. Then he says this, walk as children of light. Now, to those who, you know, lordship out there and they're preaching, if you're a Christian, you're just going to do what's right. Then why tell us what to do? Why tell us walk in the light if we're Christians? Wouldn't we just automatically just do that? That's what they say. Then I don't know why God gave us all these instructions in the New Testament on how to live. If it's something that's just in us and we just do it. No, he tells us we need to walk. Because believers are light in the Lord, Paul says, walk as children of light. And he moves from the indicative of what we are into the imperative of how we should live. You know, just because we're children of light doesn't guarantee we'll walk that way. You should know that. So Paul says, in effect, be what you are. You're light. Walk that way. How do they do that? How do they walk as light? By living in obedience to the Word of God. Walk as light. And then verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Now in this verse, Lazarus, John Eliezer, sets forth the first of his three conditional sentences, which portray what he understood to be the position of the opponents. He's giving an argument here. If we say, now, the, the we here is the functional equivalent of somebody. If somebody says this, we have fellowship while we walk in darkness. Now, you can't do that. Okay, That's not how it works. This covers anybody who says this. And this is the first of several third-class 
conditional sentences which refer to the claims of the false teachers. We've been over this before, but a first-class condition, I think you're familiar with the first-class condition, right? First-class, if means since. If and it's so. That's a first-class condition in the Greek. A second-class condition would be if and it's not so. Okay? A third-class condition is maybe yes and maybe no. And these third-class conditions are the only way to identify the assertions of these false teachers here. They appear to be early and septic Gnostics. We don't really know for sure who they were, but they had some Gnostic teaching anyway. The literary technique here is called a diatribe. All right? It's a way of presenting truth in a question-answer format. They're saying this, and they're wrong. Okay? We see this a lot in the book of Malachi. We see it in the book of Romans. Evidently, the false teachers in Ephesus were in one way or another complacent about their sinfulness. It didn't matter, because to them it was just knowledge. But John is not writing to them. He's writing to his own followers in Ephesus who are in danger of listening to those who are teaching that kind of stuff. And their teaching was apparently still influential. And so some were saying, you can have fellowship with God, whether you walking in light or not. Whether you're living in sin or walking, you can still have fellowship with God. That's what they're saying. Now, in Asia Minor, and in the world that John writes, was this false teaching of Gnosticism, and particularly Serinthian brand of Gnosticism? And they held the view that Yeshua of Nazareth was simply a man. He wasn't really the Son of God. He wasn't divine. He was simply a human being. But at a certain point in time, often associated with his baptism, they say the Messiah came upon the earthly Yeshua and he performed the will of God for a length of time and then the Messiah departed, the heavenly God departed uh, as he died on the cross. So he basically died on the cross just as a man. Now, that's not true. That's not true at all. He is the Son of God. Now, although John speaks in the first person plural here, we... This doesn't necessarily imply that any of his readers were actually falling for these claims. He's just kind of warning them. He's using a rhetorical device to make vivid the danger of adopting that view. It's, a, it's like, now imagine if we were to say this. You know, that's the idea. They're saying this. If someone says this, imagine they say this. And to each of these false statements, then John advances a theological counterclaim. And he gives the counterclaim in verse 7, verse 9, and 2.1. Each counterclaim consists of two parts. First, he refutes the cessationist claim to be without sin, to be the light as God is light. Secondly, he affirms the importance of the atoning work of Christ for the sinners. Now he says, if we say we have fellowship and walk in darkness. So some of these people are claiming, listen, I have fellowship with God, even though I'm living in sin. They claim that fellowship is just based on knowledge, just based on what I know. I don't have to do anything about it. This is an aspect, people, of Greek philosophy that comes from Plato. The Greek thinking has so infiltrated Christianity that we think more along the Greek line that is not correct with the Hebrew thought. John asserts that Christians need to live Christ-like lives. That's what he is saying, all right? He is saying we have to walk Walk is is a present, active, subjunctive. This is a biblical metaphor expressing a moral lifestyle. God is light. There's no darkness in Him. So His children should be like Him. So if we're living in sin and yet saying we have fellowship with the Father, He says, we lie and don't do the truth. 
Now these both, you lie and do not practice the truth. They're both present tense verbs. John's claim here is that the Christian who professes to have fellowship with God, who is light, who is holiness, but they disobey Him, they walk in darkness, they're lying. Just a bold statement. They lie. Simple. Okay? They lie. They're guilty of two offenses. First, they're guilty of lying about their relationship with God. Second, they're guilty about not practicing the truth. And the expression, practice the truth, is found only here in 1 John, but it does occur in John 3.21. And in that context, he says, does what is true, and it's the opposite to doing wicked things. So suggest that here in 1 John, practicing the truth means living in light of the truth and seeking to live a righteous, holy life. All right? Now, some commentators take the phrases, have fellowship with Him and walk in light as descriptive of salvation. All right? This is what it means to be saved. And advocates of this view say that if a Christian does not persevere in holy living, they're not a Christian. Problem, as I've said, many, many times, the issue here is fellowship. It's not salvation. The Christian who walks in darkness is still a Christian. They're just not a very bright one, okay? (laughs) Get it, bright, dark. Uh, (laughs) They're not in fellowship with God. Now, this is where it gets so tricky because people, you know, you've got to pay attention to words, people, Okay? Because, you know, they want to take 1 John and make everybody think they're not really a Christian. It's not talking about it. He's talking about fellowship. John earlier said his aim was that his readers who were Christians would enjoy fellowship with the disciples who are eyewitnesses. So verse 6 reflects a claim of the opponents. This is what they say. We say we have fellowship with them, but they say that, but they don't. And in verse 7, we have the counterclaim of John. John says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua's Son cleanses us from all sin. So John's counterpoint is also in the form of a conditional sentence. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, walk again is another present tense which emphasizes continuous action. This is not an event you do at one point in time. This is what you do constantly. It's a New Testament metaphor for the Christian life. You walk. Look at Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You've been called to this. Walk this way. To which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Believers, truth is something we are to live out, not just something we know. Walking in the light doesn't mean that those people who walk in the light never sin it means they deal with sin when it does happen when it comes up they confess it before god they deal with their sin by walking in the light here he means living up to what the word of god shows us is the will of god and again these verses are not evangelistic john is challenging christians to live in fellowship with god he's not questioning anybody's salvation I think chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 makes that clear. He's not questioning their salvation. He's encouraging them to live holy lives. He says, as he is in the light. Now in 1 John 1, 5, he said God is light. But here he says he is in the light, which indicates that he is going to use the metaphor as an ethical, in an ethical fashion. Believers are to think and live like God. 
Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We're to imitate God. We're to be His image bearers. We're to reflect the character of God to a lost world that we live in. And the consequence of walking in the light are twofold. He says we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua's Son cleanses us from all sin. So the first consequence, we have fellowship with one another. So who's the one another here? Would it be referring to fellowship with God or fellowship with other Christians? Yes. 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 God is in the light. When you walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. Two Christians are walking in the light. They have fellowship with one another. As people walk in the light with God, they walk in the light with one another. And if you're in fellowship with God, you'll also be in fellowship with other believers who are in fellowship with God. Now the term fellowship here, koinonia, koinonia, which means joint participation between two persons. The only grounds on which we can have fellowship with another man or woman as brothers and sisters in Christ is the gospel. Okay? Please hear what I'm saying here. Fellowship is brought about by the gospel, not brought about by eschatology. Okay? And I'm just, I'm, I fear because there's so many people who, they believe the Lord returned in 87, and so therefore we just say, ah, they're our brothers, they're sitting. No, they're not. Unless they're straight on the gospel. If they deny the fundamentals of the gospel, they are not your brother and sister. You cannot have fellowship with them. Because let me tell you something, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, is way more important than eschatology. And there's a group of people within preterism who proclaim you have to be baptized in water specifically for the purpose of the remission of sins or you cannot be saved. It is ritual salvation. And and that's not even the end of it. It goes even further. You have to be baptized in water by a Church of Christ minister. Anybody else doesn't count. And believers are just joining hands with these people, and I'm like, we're destroying the gospel. It's way more important. How do you fellowship with people who aren't even on the same plane with you? You know, you, you pick out a secondary thing like eschatology. We agree on that. Big deal. What's more important? I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I just think, you know, this is an important thing, Okay. The second consequence of walking in the light is it says the blood of Yeshua, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is a present active indicative. By the use of the present tense here for the verbs to walk and to cleanse, the author is representing both of these as ongoing activities. That's important. You walking, continual. Cleansing is continual. They're ongoing. Not a one-time, boom, you're cleansing. That's, you're okay now. Now, the term sin here is singular, and there's no article with it. And this implies any kind of sin. Notice this verse is not focusing on a one-time cleansing. Salvation. Salvation is a one-time cleansing. That's not the focus here. This focus here is on an ongoing cleansing. And both are part of the Christian experience. Of course, you have to start with salvation, and then you move on. God cleanses us at conversion 
in the sense that He will never again bring us into judgment for our sins. Okay? That's settled. That's done. You get saved, you're saved. It's not a process. Okay? You believe, you're saved. Okay? It's an event, not a process. However, we need cleansing from the defilement that we get as we live the Christian life or as we seek to. Because sin hinders our fellowship with God. And so we have to be cleansed continually along the way so we can remain in fellowship. I think this is what John's talking about here in John, or Yeshua's talking about John 13. This is uh, the upper room discourse. Yeshua disrobes, he takes a towel, wraps around himself, starts washing the disciples' feet. And Peter said to him, of course it's got to be Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Nope, you're not doing that to me, Lord. I'm too good for that. Or not, you know, you're too good for that. And Yeshua answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And the word share here is meros, and it has the idea of communion or fellowship. Well, Simon Peter said to him, okay then, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head also. Wash, give me a whole bath, Lord. And Yeshua said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Now, what I want you to see here, what's happening here is that Yeshua is distinguishing the two types of spiritual cleansing that believers experience. Let's call them forensic forgiveness and family forgiveness. Oh, let's call them positional forgiveness and practical forgiveness. It's, you have to be clear, people, on your position. And you have to understand the Bible talks about the difference between who you are as the person, your position in Christ, and your daily practice. And when you confuse these two, that's where you get confused, all right? When a person believes Yeshua, God removes the guilt. He removes their sins committed in the past, in the present, in the future. They're clean. They're righteous. They're in Christ. Yeshua spoke of this forensic or legal forgiveness. He says, as a bath, the one who has bathed, it's luo. You, you took a whole bath, you're clean, okay? He doesn't need to wash except for his feet. He needs this cleansing because you walk in daily, you're getting dirt on your feet, you need to be cleansed. He says, but he's completely clean. And then he says this, you're clean, but not every one of you. Why do you say that? Because Judas was still there. He hadn't left yet. Judas wasn't a believer. Judas didn't have a bath. He wasn't clean. All right? After a person believes in Yeshua as Savior, he or she is not going to be sinlessly perfect. They're going to go through life. They're going to do a lot of falling and hopefully a lot of getting back up. But if you want to have fellowship with God, you have to continually be cleansed. So our text is not referring to salvation. Can I say that again? It's not about salvation. It's about the removal of the obstacle to fellowship, which is a consciousness of sin. It's the cleansing of our conscience. And one can be a Christian and not, at any particular point in time, be experiencing this fellowship. If we, we Christians, do not walk in the light, we're not going to have fellowship with God. People, you can't just live a sinful life and expect, oh God, I'm a Christian. That's okay. You might be a Christian. But if you're going to live in sin, you're going to suffer for it. And you're not going to walk in fellowship with God. And the focus here is pretty much positive. It's just on fellowship, not on the rest of what you'll lose because you're not walking under the light. He talks here about the blood of Yeshua. This is metonymy. 
for the death of Christ. It's referring to the violent death on the cross. It's the death which provides purification from sin for those who walk in the light as God is in the light. Now, because the early Gnostics denied Yeshua's true humanity, I think John uses blood here to enforce the fact. No, he was a, he was a real man, all right? Now, since this cleansing from sin is something that follows when we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We must refer in this context primarily to ongoing sanctification. I think that practical sanctification. Now, sanctification can be very confusing because there's all kinds of different views on there. So let me talk about that for a minute. During the transition period from Pentecost to Holocaust, the church is growing. Pentecost started, the church born at Pentecost, the church begins to grow. They are being built for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All right, growing to maturity. Once the building was finished in 87, God moved in. The building's not being built in that sense anymore, all right? During the transition period, the church was growing into the image of Christ. They were becoming like Christ. That talks about their position, not their practice. That growth was completed in AD 70, and believers became immortal. They put on immortality. They became fully, completely what God had intended them to be in their position, Now, this progressive sanctification was something that happened to the first century saints, not to us. They were growing in their positional holiness. Let me just say this, because this is important. I believe that we should be growing in our practical holiness, in our day-to-day lives, okay? As you walk with the Lord, your life should reflect His values and His attributes. We're not growing into Christ's image positionally because we already have that. We, We share that with Him. We're complete in Christ, but we're to walk like we are complete in Christ. It's to manifest itself in our life. So as believers past AD 70, what does sanctification mean? Well, first of all, sanctification is synonymous with being in Christ. As a position, our positional sanctifications were set apart. We belong to God, we're righteous, we're holy, holy as Christ is. That's our position. But I believe there should be a practical or experiential aspect to this sanctification. I believe that Yahweh has called us to live holy lives. And that's why we're here, so the world can see there's a distinction between us and them. And that's what John's talking about when he says that we're to walk in the light. We're to walk in such a way that people look at us and say, why are they different? What's different about them? W. Hall Harris III writes this on his, in his commentary on 1 John 1, 7. He says, If we understand these statements to refer to initial justification, which he's not talking about, the force of the conditional construction in the apotesis, if we walk in the light, would make one's justification contingent upon one's deeds or behavior. We sure don't want that, do we? And this comes perilously close to making one's salvation depend, at least in part, upon one's good works. So he's saying, John's not talking about salvation in this text. He's not worried about the initial justification because he's writing to those who believe in Christ. He's reassuring them about forgiveness of sins committed after they've become Christians. Now, verse 8 gives us a second of the three conditional clauses beginning with if we say, and represents the false teachers again, if we say we have no sin. Really? No sin at all? The Greek word for sin here is hamartia. Thayer defines it as missing the mark, to be in error, to be mistaken, 
to wander from the path. That's sin. You get off the path, you're in sin. This word occurs 17 times in 1 John. Now, what sense do they mean we have no sin? What are the, what are the opponents saying here? Some have interpreted the phrase no sin to mean no sin nature, no sin principle. But this seems out of harmony with John's use of to have sin in other places. I think what the opponents were claiming here was that they were not by nature free from the sin principle, but they were not guilty of committing sins. No, we're not doing that. That's, that's not wrong. See, the Gnostics separated your spirit from your physical. Physical did bad things, but you really didn't. Okay. So they, what they're probably saying is, well, they, we haven't sinned since we've come to know God. We're, since we've experienced salvation, we're fine. We're, not, we're doing okay. Now, here's the thing. Within this big sphere of preterism, this huge tree with all these different branches, there's some in this, under this umbrella that are saying sin ended in A.D. 70. Okay? Therefore, we don't sin today. We don't sin today. Okay? Let me just say, this is a very self-serving view that allows them to gauge in any sinful behavior they want and say, hey, it's okay. So, so check out the lifestyle of people who are teaching this kind of doctrine, okay? And see if they, in fact, do actually sin. I guarantee you they do. Okay? And you have to understand this, people. Beyond eighty seventy, men still sin. So do women. Hang on to this. Christians still sin. <laughs> we don't have others. You still sin, okay? Believers still sin. We struggle with it. It's an ongoing battle. Every day. Somebody tests you every day. Whether it be on the highway, whether it be your job, whether it be at school... Somebody is testing you. You know, you're going through it. You have opportunities to sin. Because John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So these people who are saying, these people within predators are saying, well, we don't sin, they're self-deceived. Okay? They make the claim to be without sin, but <laughs> it's self-deception. It's, and again, this is ongoing. They're continually deceiving themselves. John is dealing with the potential acceptance of the adversary's claims by some of the readers. If they were to accept this false teaching and claim to be free from sin and guilt, they'd be deceiving themselves because that's not a true condition. And then he says this, and the truth's not in them. Now this is synonymous with deceiving oneself. The word truth here, the Greek, aletheia, occurs nine times in 1 John. From this survey of this use of this word, truth, in 1 John, it's clear that the Johannian understanding of truth is very different from the Greek notions of truth. Johannian idea of truth is found in the word of the Father turned into mankind in the incarnate Son of God, illuminated through the actions of the Spirit, taught in the word of God. Now, verse 9 contains the second counterclaim of John. John says, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this verse is the converse of verse 8. Acknowledging the sins of which we're aware is the opposite of saying we're not guilty of sins. Now there are some who insist that 1 John 1.9 has nothing to do with Christians. Which is weird because John did write this to Christians, but they say it has nothing to do with Christians. This is an invitation for non-Christians, they say. Non-Christians have to confess their sin. Christians don't. Confess here is a compound Greek word, homologeo. Okay? 
It means to speak and to say the same thing. So homologeto basically means to say the same thing. Same thing as who? The same thing as God. When you're confessing your sins, you're saying about your sins the same thing God says about them. They're sins. Confessing, therefore, means saying about our sins the same thing God does, namely, that they're sin. They're offenses against Him. It's present tense again, which implies an ongoing action. Believers continue to agree with God that they have violated His holiness, that what they are doing is wrong. Now, some say, well, because believers are already forgiven of all their sin, they don't need to confess their sins. Well, to not confess your sins would be not to agree with God about it. All right? And that's what's happening today. So much. I mean, we call sin now, we're celebrated. We have Pride Month. Well, the Bible, pride is a sin, bottom line. But now we're going to celebrate sin. How many other sins do we have that we're going to celebrate like that? You know, we're going to go out and celebrate that we're homosexual, we're transgender, we're going to celebrate it. It's a sin. Why would you want to celebrate your sin? Why would you want to jam it in our face? They're, they're working so hard. Hollywood is so behind us, people. They are pushing so hard to just make it normal. Okay, God says it's an abomination. I don't care what society says. I don't care how accepted it gets. I, I just don't care. It's wrong, period. Well, we can't help who we love. Bible says it's a sin. Bottom line. Okay? And people don't want to confess it, though. We got homosexual churches that they worship God. God loves us. You know, God made us this way. God loves us. Well, that's not what the Bible says. But people don't seem to spend time in the Bible, so they just do whatever they want to do. Now, this idea of confessing, confessing sins is not a theme that we find much in the New Testament. We really only see it in three other places. We see it in the synoptic accounts in the ministry of John the Baptist where people were coming, confessing their sins to be baptized by him. We see it in James 5.16, which is an interesting spot there. James says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So they're confessing sins and praying for healing. And I think the issue there in James is these people are sick because of sin. And so he's telling them, you come confess the sin, pray for one another, you'll be healed. We also see confession of sins in Ephesus when the people confessed their evil deeds and they burned all their magical books and stuff in the ministry of Paul in Acts 19. Now, since in each of these cases confession of sin is public, some people teach that John is saying you need to confess your sins publicly. Okay? But John doesn't specify that exact circumstance. He doesn't say, you need to get up in front of the church and tell everybody what a sinner you are. People know probably anyway, you know. So you don't need to do that, I don't think. What's important is not the circumstance surrounding it. The important thing is the confession. And I think confession can be a private confession. If people don't know about your sin, there's no sense in bragging about it. You're talking about just go to God and deal with it before God. Now, but if you've offended another believer, or if you sinned against another believer, then yeah, you should go to that believer and confess your sins. Because your sin was against them. Or this could be a, a public confession of sin by the believer to the community because the community is aware of that sin. 
And I've seen this happen, and we've done this in, in, in public services where people get up and confess their sin and ask for forgiveness. And I think it's a great thing because that's what James says to do. Confess your sins one to another. You know, we want to come to church and all act like we've got no problems, we've got it all together, we're holy, we're perfect, we're hypocrites. We're not being honest with one another. How are you doing today? What does everybody ever say? Great, perfect, wonderful. I wonder if my life sucks, I'm about to die. You know, what's wrong? <laughs> Tell the truth, you know? How, you know, because we, we put up this facade and then, you know, no one really gets to know one another and you don't really get the help of another person when you're struggling because they never think you struggle. And I've had a young believer come to me one time. We had a service and some man stood up and confessed his sin and a young believer came to me and said, wow, that was so encouraging. I'm like, I didn't get it at first. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I thought I was the only one with problems. Oh, so he learned that everybody else in the church is not perfect. He's not the only one dealing with sin. Other people are. And there's just, you know, there's not a reality in the church that needs to be, you know. Nobody thinks anybody's perfect, okay? (laughs) Let's start with that, all right? But I think the believer's life should be marked with continual confession of sins. It begins at salvation and goes through the rest of the life. It's a crucial part of walking in the light, John says. I want to walk in the light. I want to be in fellowship with God. Then I have to realize some things that you do are wrong and deal with them. It's not just a confession. You've got to deal with the sin, all right? So when the believer agrees with God about his sin, it says God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. Yahweh is a faithful God. Exodus 34, 6, which also links God's forgiveness with His faithfulness, is probably behind this text. Now, before the judgment throne of God, the sins of believers are forgiven before they're ever committed, even if they're never confessed, because God said He has forgiven all our sins. In a positional sense. As a righteous judge, He has done that Because your sins have been paid for. Somebody else paid your debt, so you're clear. You're clean. Your debt for eternity. The price has been paid in full. Therefore, God cannot hold you guilty because you're not positionally. But some expositors want to teach this verse cannot apply to Christians since God has already forgiven Christians. Therefore, we don't, but they don't make a distinction between your position and your practice. Listen, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation is katakrima, all right? And katakrima means no punishment, no penalty, because it's been paid for those who are in Christ Yeshua, complete forever, always. Your position, believer, is secure, it's unmovable, It'll never change. I don't care what you do in your practice. You're locked in. Sorry. You can't. If you've trusted, if ever you've trusted Christ and become a Christian, that's permanent. That's your position. Forever, for all. Your life can be as screwed up as imaginable sometimes. And it really can be. But you're still, and listen, that's the encouraging thing to me. If your life is a mess, and so because of Lordship teaching, you're like, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Then why try? What's the motivation to try to live holy when you don't even know if you're really a Christian or not? And you've already tried because you believe, but it didn't seem to work, so you just keep stumbling. But when you know who you are, I'm a child of God. 
I'm bought and paid for. There's a motivation to honor God by that life. And the problem is this, this viewpoint, it just fails to distinguish between positional forgiveness and family forgiveness or practical forgiveness that we need after conversion because we do sin. And so we need to go to God and acknowledge that, Lord, this is, this is wrong what I'm doing. I need to change this, Lord. Positional forgiveness makes us holy and righteous as Christ, members of God's family. Whereas family or practical forgiveness enables us to experience intimate fellowship as sons with God's family. Sin interrupts fellowship, but it will never change our positional relationship. He says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As the believer continues confessing their sin, they're forgiven, they're cleansed. Forgive and cleanse are both aorist, active, subjunctives. These terms are synonymous in this context, and they refer to the salvation. They refer not to the salvation of the lost. They refer to an ongoing cleansing necessary for fellowship with God. So when a believer sins, he doesn't lose forgiveness and cleansing that took place at salvation. But he does experience a break in that fellowship if he's going to keep living in sin. If they confess their sins, then God will forgive their sins, it says, and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Now people, you know, I know this can be confusing, but I don't think it's that complicated if you just understand your position is secure, it's forever. In Matthew 18, you got a, the parable of forgiveness. You know, and you got the steward that comes to the Lord and says, you know, forgive me all my debt, you know, and this, the Lord does. And then that same person goes out and grabs another Christian who owes him just a couple pennies and says, pay me what you owe. And he says, oh, give me time and I will. And he won't. He grabs him by the throat. And the Bible says that God's going to hand him over to the torturers. And I see that. I see that in the Christian life because I see Christians who are not living the Christian life, who are walking in sin. And I see some miserable people. It's supposed to be that way. I smile when I see it because I'm, I'm glad you're miserable. Helps me understand that you're a child of God off the path. That's how it's supposed to be off the path. If it's enjoyable, you know, what's your motivation to stay on the path, all right? If Christians would just confess the sins they're aware of, God will forgive them, cleanse them. You don't need to be handed over to the tortures. You need to walk on the path. Now, this confession, this forgiveness is an ongoing process. That's why we're always confessing. We're asking for forgiveness. Your justification is fixed and settled reality. Your practical sanctification ebbs and flows depending on how you deal with sin in your life. So when a believer refuses to walk in fellowship with God, he puts himself in a position of discipline. And God can get really angry with his children when they sin. Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You've got to get that. You're sons. You belong to God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's important that you're sons because you don't go disciplining kids that aren't yours usually. Okay? You discipline your own kids, all right? Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, the word chastise here is the Greek word mastigao, and it means to fillet or skin alive with a whip. That's a good picture there, right? Believer, 
God sees your sin and He's displeased with it. And He disciplines us because He wants us to walk on the path. Because as His children, He wants us to live in fellowship with Him. Believers, you cannot walk in the light if you're not confessing your sins. Now, if you compare verses 6 and 7 and verses 8 and 9, you can see from these parallels that denying our sin is part of what it means to walk in darkness. And confessing our sins is part of what it means to walk in the light. This text, again, is all about fellowship. It doesn't have to do with salvation. It's about walking in an intimate relationship with God. And I wish I could put in words what I'm even talking about here, because to walk in fellowship with God is the most joyful, the most blessed, the most incredible thing you could ever experience. It's just, to be in fellowship with the Creator of the world is nothing but amazing. You know, I was, I was thinking this week, how do we know if our spiritual life is good? How do people, and I was thinking this because I was on my phone, I have a fitness app on my phone that tracks everything. I track all the food I eat, I track my weight, I track blood pressure, I track, I'm tracking all these things. Then you go get tests, you know, blood tests, and you track everything. You know all about yourself. Okay, I can physically, okay, physically, you look like I might make it another month or so. I'm doing okay, all right? But, you know, you wish, is there something for spiritually so we can, you know, pull out our spiritual app and say, oh, okay, I'm doing all right. Well, there would be if, you know, you had an app that tracked, first of all, your Bible reading. That would be helpful because, let me say, you're not going to be really spiritually healthy if you're not spending time in the Word of God. That's what He gave us the Word for, all right? It involves reading the words. It involves spending time in prayer. Those things are really important. But if you're walking in fellowship with God, I think some things will be evident in your life, okay? We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about fellowship, okay? Because if you're walking in fellowship with God, I think you're going to have joy. And it doesn't matter the circumstances you're in. The joy comes from God, okay? You're going to have peace. And again, it doesn't matter your circumstances. You just have this peace that is beyond explaining because God is in control and you're resting in the sovereignty of God. To me, and this is my personal view, to me, one of the greatest indicators of spiritual health is gratitude. To me, the single greatest act of personal worship that you can give to God is to have a grateful heart. Just read about Israel and their complaining and what God did with them because they were not happy no matter what the situation was. And listen, if you are a believer, do you realize how much you have to be grateful for? What God has done for you, what He has given you? I don't care what your physical situation is, your spiritual life, I mean, it's incredible. You got, you're going to live forever with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I think a deep sense of gratitude is an indicator of your spiritual health because when you realize who God is, when you're walking in fellowship with Him, there's just nothing but your prayer life is going to be mostly thanksgiving. God, how? I used to say, all this in heaven too. It's amazing, Okay. It's amazing. And believers, I'll tell you, just young people, understand it. You know, it's, I know there's so many temptations for our young people today. There's just, you know, because the world is upside down right now. Okay? But let me just tell you, if you get off that path 
you'll pay a price. You'll pay a price, and it's not worth it. If you stay on that path, you'll have a life that is just incredible. No matter what circumstances come your way, no matter what hardships you face, you will live life because God created us to live an abundant Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. I hope we had some opportunity here to clear up this misunderstanding and understand there's a distinct difference between who are our position and in our practice. And I thank you, Lord, that we're secure in our position. But in our practice, Lord, you want us to look like you. God, give us a will. Give us a desire. Help us to understand who you are. Understand your incredible love for us, that that love would motivate us to live in such a way that brings honor to you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Questions? Comments? Yes? Like in the first book of Adam and Eve, uh, where once they lost fellowship with God, they were so distraught that they couldn't bear to live anymore. And to me, that was such a blessing. He's talking about a pseudopicker for work. The book of Adam and Eve. You know, you read about the garden, boom, he sins, boom, he's kicked out, done. But in the book of Adam and Eve, it talks about Adam and Eve's life after they get kicked out of the garden. And they spend their whole life trying to get back in, and they're just absolutely miserable because they're out of fellowship with God. I mean, that, I could feel that book. It makes you see sin is horrible. You know, that's, that's what I got out of that book in Adam, Adam and Eve. The, the sin is a horrible thing. It separates you from the God who loves you and who blesses you in so many ways. They, they're missing out in the garden, but they want it back in so badly. It, it's, it's a powerful read. It really is. And that's why Jesus brought back to us an opportunity to have fellowship with his Father. Amen. He's the, he's the door to the fellowship with God that men had lost, you know. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't like pushing pseudofic pseudepigrapher works. The reason I don't like it is because most Christians don't read their Bibles. But if you're a Christian who reads your Bible, then you've wanted some extra reading. Some of these pseudepigrapher works, are, they'll, like the book of Adam, that, again, it'll make you see the damage that sin brings. You can feel their pain. I mean, it's that, it's that powerful. Anybody else? Norm writes, for years under Lordship Theology, I never knew I was truly saved. Free grace has done exactly that. It's freed me. I made very bad decisions under Lordship, and I paid. Believe I paid. Now I have a lot of growing up in a short time. Again, thank you for feeding me. You're welcome, Norman. And brother, I understand that because I was Lordship for a long time. And uh, let me tell you what, I was a grade A class one Pharisee. I mean, if you didn't do the things that I thought a Christian should do, you were done. You know, you were just done. Okay, so, and but I understand the freeing when when I got on my knees before God and and because I had we were out with another couple and this guy was a graduate of Dallas and we got together and we're talking all night. We got in this issue of lordship and I'm lordship, so I'm hammering him and he's hammering free grace. I got home that night. We got, it was after one, I know. And Kathy went to bed, and I went to my study, and I got on my face before God, and I said, God, this is, this is abominable doctrine, but if it's true, don't let me miss it. And in the next six months, every time I opened my Bible, man, stuff was just jumping out at me, and I just, 
I got before God and I asked him to forgive me, you know, for being such a Pharisee, for being such a hypocrite. And I thanked him for the grace of God. Because it's all about grace, people. And that's the problem with lordship. You'd be judging everybody. John Paul's key words earlier about having how Christ is our advocate. You know, what's the point of that if it's all about us just being good, you know, right. fitting in the box, you know? It's like we have an advocate constantly before the Father. That's you right. A hot mess, man. And that's what he says. If anyone sin, <laughs> oh yeah, you're going to. We have an advocate with the Father. Amen. Yeshua, the Christ, the righteous. Amen. Chris writes from Pennsylvania. Gary and Chris, I'm sorry. Good morning. Blessing from Yeshua, our Father. Great message that the church needs to understand. I I believe that. They really do. I have a question. I was talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Man. With my sister-in-law, we were discussing Matthew 5, 17 and 18 and some other passages when she referred to Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. I don't. I really didn't have a solid answer other than it was metaphorical, but Matthew 5, 17 and 18 confirms it. How does it fit in Hebrews 1? Now, Matthew 5, 17 and 18 is talking about Yeshua saying the law will not pass away, not jot or tittle will pass away to all be fulfilled. Uh, Hebrews 1, 10 talks about heavens and earth passing away. Okay? Um, and I think they're talking about the same thing. Okay? Yeshua is talking about the fact that you know, this law, the, the law of God, the Mosaic law is not going to go away. Everything is intact, every part of it, until it's done. And that was done at AD 70. And that was the heavens and the earth of the old covenant passing away. The new heavens and the earth are put in place where righteousness dwells. That's the key to new heavens and earth. It's the synonymous with the new covenant. Righteousness dwells in the new covenant. All right, it didn't dwell in the old covenant, but it dwells here in the new covenant, and that's because we have the righteousness of Christ. How do you, someone says, how do you explain this? Knowing that scripture is not written to us, how do we know it applies to us? Is there a scripture verse that implies that? Uh, I wish it was that simple, okay? And that's, that's a, that's the $10,000 question, and it's a good question. And let me tell you how I look at that, okay? I look at this, the New Testament was written to the churches. I'm part of the church. So, if, if in the context of the writing, there's not something that's specific to them, or a specific time reference that, that narrows it to a certain time period, then it applies to me. Because the things that God said to the churches, He didn't say just to one church, a bunch of churches, He told them the same thing. So, we read that letter as part of the church, Realizing it's written to the church, and if there's no reason to limit it to the first century or to limit it to that local assembly, then I apply it to myself. I think that's simple. Okay? I'm the church, I'm reading it as the church and applying it to myself. Now, we can get off on that. There's some things that people, you know, they're applying it and there's, well, no, that was kind of them, but, you know, there is a time reference there or there is a reason for that church being dealt with that. But again, you know, the letters. They're written to the churches, okay? And we're the church. And so does he want part of the church to live like this and part of the church? No, no. it's his church, and it's his rules for the church. And again, they're, they're put there that we can have life and have it abundantly. He's not trying to make us miserable, okay? He's really not. Everybody sinned against God. Everybody deserves to die. 
know, men from all walks of life in all time periods, you know, by believing or saying. That's it. There's some, there's some things that are just, you know, again, it's for the church universal. And that's what's important. That somebody wrote, um, so grateful to have found you. Yeah, my wife says that too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I, I appreciate that. David, thank you from the Falsters for your loving insistence about reading our Bible daily. We are in our second year. Is the book of Adam and Eve by Lumpkin? He does an interpretation of it. Okay, yeah, that, that is one interpretation of it, but I mean, you can just look at the different people have taken the pseudepigraphos and translate them and interpret them. So, yeah, that is, that is one of those by him, though. But he, does I, a lot of, he does a lot of commentary on a lot of those, oh, he does? too. But, um, I, but I, he, I, no, he notes it, though, doesn't he, that he's doing commentary? Well, I mean, he, in the beginning, he have a bunch of stuff. Okay. And stuff. But um, I have his book on Enoch, and it's got some really good stuff in it. He's got some good stuff in it. Okay, Jeff highly, rec- highly recommends Lumpkin. So if you're, yeah, going to read a soon well, paperwork. To a degree. <laughs> to, a, to a degree. Now he's backing down. Be a politician. Yeah, again, if you're a Christian that's reading your Bible and you want some extra stuff, this is, and the reason this stuff is, the pseudepigrapher is important is because this is in the heads of the New Testament writers. They quoted these books, okay? Not Adam and Eve, they quoted Enoch. Um, but they knew this stuff, and so it helps us understand their thinking and stay in tune with that. Gary, do you have a question? You mentioned uh, how uh, we responded to asking how we are. And most, most of the time people say, how are you doing? I'm just going better than I deserve. Yeah, Gary and always says that. And then you just say amen. That's right. You are better than No, no, no. You deserve it better than <laughs> You don't know what you deserve. <laughs> Yeah, we, we as believers do not want to talk about deserve, okay? Mm-hmm. We just want to be thankful for grace, okay? Mm-hmm. We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve justice. Mm-hmm. And we got grace.